0: Welcome to Talkless Water, the podcast that takes a deep dive into the world of water with those making waves. My name is Todd Bodler and I'm your host for Talkless Water. I'm also the editor in chief of Texas Plus Water and the Texas Water Journal. You can sign up for Texas Plus Water by visiting TexasplusWater.org and you can sign up for the Texas Water Journal at Texaswaterjournal.org. Both publications are free. My guest today is Professor Abigail Andre an environmental litigator with over a decade of experience enforcing the Clean Water Act. She recently joined the staff of the Vermont Law School's Environmental Advocacy Clinic after 10 years of environmental litigation with the U.S. Department of Justice's Environmental Enforcement Section. From 2010 to 2016, Professor Andre helped litigate cases arriving from the 2010 Deepwater Horizon oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico, which led to the largest environmental civil settlement in U.S. history and for which she received the Attorney General's Distinguished Service Award in 2016. Abby, welcome, and thank you for being part of Talkless Water.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So let's start out with your background in water. How did you first become involved with water?
1: So it was 2010 and I was finishing up my law degree at Ohio State when the Deepwater Horizon oil rig exploded in the Gulf of Mexico. So if you remember, starting on April 20th, the nation was pretty much glued to the TV right? There was footage of ongoing spills playing live in our auditorium. And I was watching it between classes and on breaks. And I'd wander down and just sit there. And day after day, nothing changed, nothing happened. So stepping back, I knew by then that I'd be joining DOJ in the fall and I'd be working in the environmental enforcement section. Now, they do all of the civil litigation, most of the civil litigation arising from Clean Water Act, Oil Pollution Act, and other major statutes. So we were allowed to preference which area of the country we'd focus on, and by spring of that year, I hadn't chosen. And after sitting there and watching for days and then weeks, I preferenced work in the Gulf and was assigned ultimately to work in the Gulf. So I went to DC that fall and after asking and asking and asking, um, an opportunity arose and I was added to the team to litigate the case and spent the next six years, mostly down in New Orleans, um, in and out of the Eastern district of Louisiana, trying the case. And that's how I started working in water. Wow.
0: Interesting. Well, uh, so my wife is from New Orleans, and so I uh, spent a lot of time there, uh, and uh, it's a really great place. Uh, very interesting, very different, but um, you know, yeah, we love it. Yeah. And um, uh, I'm, I'm sure I know the, the exact area where you were, where all the, the federal court buildings are located. I've been over there a number of times. Yep. Okay.
1: It's right there. It's not that far from the quarter, really.
0: So that's a that's a really unique opportunity. I mean, you you're in school, and then you're right in the middle of the biggest environmental litigation, I guess, in the country's history. I mean, is it close? Is that probably correct? Or
1: it was the it ultimately was the largest environmental trial um, in our history, and and certainly the the largest that the DOJ had ever been a part of. Um, yeah, it was three different trials for the U.S.'s part over six years um, in front of Judge Barbier down in the Eastern District. And it and it was an in- incredible and very unique experience to go from school into that case so quickly. I was very lucky. I'll
0: bet. I'll bet. Well, so one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about today um, among, you know, several is the U.S. Supreme Court. And uh you know, how the court has changed over the last few years, because, you know, there's, uh, you know, kind of a new lineup of, of uh, Supreme Court justices and what you think, you know, that might mean for environmental law in the United States. And so why don't we, why don't we kind of start off with that?
1: Yeah, well, it's a big question. And I, I think there's a lot that could change. So as you say, the Trump administration really Radically altered the court um, with the help of Mitch McConnell. Uh, three new justices in the last four years, all of whom um, were specifically chosen for conservative views on a number of issues. And I should say, you know, we often try and read tea leaves about how judges are going to rule before they're on the bench in this particular place. And it's not always fair. Uh, sometimes we're wrong, but w- we do have some indication now about how the law may change. Um, First, I think it's just important to recognize that Justices Kavanaugh and Roberts are now considered the swing votes. They're considered the middle of the courts. Whereas when Roberts was appointed, he was definitely viewed as more conservative. Um, To his right, you have Justices Alito, Thomas, Gorsuch, and now Barrett, most likely. So to say there's been a dramatic change, you know, you really can't overstate it. It's a huge change. Um, So we know a few things about Justice Barrett and that we know she's an originalist, that she was a Scalia clerk. So
0: let me stop you there. Why don't you tell us, explain to us what an originalist is, because not everybody will know that.
1: So there are a couple ways that judges look at the law and interpret the law before them. And generally you call yourself a textualist where you're really focused on the language of the law and originalists fall into that category or a purposivist where you look at what the law means and you try to look not only at the language, but the uh, congressional records and the history surrounding the law, why the law was made to try and understand what Congress wanted the law to mean, because despite best efforts, the laws that Congress write are not always crystal clear, right? So Barrett in the originalist camp tends to take a narrower view based on purely textual readings. Um, And historically, Her predecessors, Scalia, and others in the originalist camp in the Supreme Court have taken pretty narrow views of environmental statutes and environmental law. Um, She's also signaled criticism for expansive application of the Commerce Clause, which is what allows Congress to really write these sweeping Clean Water Act, Clean Air Act laws that there's some hook with interstate commerce, right? That it impacts more than one state and therefore it's not solely a state issue. So she has through her academic writing tipped her hat about those two things, but she hasn't been on the bench for very long and she doesn't have any major environmental rulings that we can look to for more more information than that. So that's kind of Justice Barrett I think um, we will see how she rules. Um, I think, though, it's absolute certainty that she will rule on the conservative end of the spectrum. Um, So from the perspective of NGOs who work on citizen suits, which allow people like you and I to bring cases under the big environmental statutes, I think the changes to the court are really going to fall into two categories. I think first you can see attacks on the tools that environmental lawyers use to get to court, like standing. And then second, I think you'll see some attacks on the foundations of environmental law itself, so the constitutional bases that underlie our laws. Um, And and both will really have a narrowing impact on the Clean Water Act, but but any major environmental statute.
0: So, withstanding your in access, I mean essentially that is who who's affected by some action and can therefore file uh, a lawsuit and you know pursue some remedy. Is that essentially it?
1: Yeah, that's essentially it. So standing um, requires you to articulate a a discrete, concrete injury. And how that injury is defined really determines how many people can bring claims. And you have two major precedents which have been kind of weighing against each other and balancing each other over the last couple of decades. One is Luhan which Justice Scalia wrote for the majority, which said, if you don't have particularized injury, you can't bring cases that simply say, we don't like how the government is running this program as far as environmental harm goes, right? You can't just walk into court and say, I'm one of thousands of people that think that the government is doing a bad job here. It has to be more specific than that. On the other hand, Justice Ginsburg in Laidlaw said that environmental plaintiffs didn't need to show actual injury for standing, just a reasonable concern that injury may occur, right? So you could look at pollution in the lake outside your house and worry that that impact um, might impact your health, your family's health, and that that could be enough to get you to court. So Here's the shift. The shift that we see seeing, we suspect we'll see now, is a, a narrowing back of standing. Um, in 2007, there was a landmark case decided called Massachusetts v. EPA. Um, it was written by Justice Breyer and said that carbon dioxide and greenhouse gases were air pollutants under the Clean Air Act and could be regulated by the Environmental Protection Agency. So the justices that signed on were Breyer, Ginsburg, Kennedy, Sotomayor, and Stevens, or Souter, rather, and Stevens. Um, And with the exception of Breyer, they're not there anymore. In the dissent, Justice Roberts wrote that, Courts only have jurisdiction over cases where there's an injury that can be traced to a particular action that the courts have the power to redress. right? And so what people think might happen now is if there's another case like Massachusetts v. EPA that tries to get the court to expand to address something like climate change, for example, that what was a minority opinion in Mass v. EPA would become a majority opinion here and the court will say, if we don't have a way to fix it, and if the injury can't be traced to a particular action, it could block access to courts. So it's a circuitous kind of path through all of these cases, but where we land now and why people are worried is that Roberts has foreshadowed what he would say if he were writing for the majority, and on climate change in particular, Um, He said in that opinion that it would be pure conjecture to suppose that EPA regulation of new automobile emissions would aid in the loss of Massachusetts coastal land, which are the facts surrounding the case in the first instance, Mm. which suggests maybe he doesn't buy into climate change as a concern that he thinks courts should have much to do with. And, and we know that Barrett might agree with him on, on that. Fund.
0: And that's, that came from her confirmation hearing, I think that she, because she was asked about that, I believe.
1: That's right. That's right. Um, Vice president elect Kamala Harris actually asked her about um, climate change. She asked whether climate change was real and, 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 Justice Barrett said she wouldn't answer the question because it's a contentious issue. Um, And those of us in the environmental fields are, are um, upset to hear that opinion, given that we think it's a scientific certainty that climate change is real. Gotcha. It's only a matter of how we're going to deal with it.
0: Okay. Mm. So um, now kind of, Taking a look at some other things that the Supreme Court does, um, you know, if you've if you've listened to Talk Plus Water before, you know, we've had some discussions about uh, some of the uh, uh, cases uh, over over water between states like Florida versus Georgia and Texas versus New Mexico and Mississippi versus Tennessee, for example. Do we have kind of any you know clues as to what might happen in that type of litigation because, you know, it's, there's more of it, it seems like, as we're moving forward. And I, uh, you know, was interviewed about Mississippi versus Tennessee here not too long ago, and, and I, I think what I said in the interview was that those issues are expanding from the western U.S. to the eastern U.S., although they wrote down shifting from the West to the East. Now there's still, we still have them in the West. Uh, And and so to me, it seems like we're going to have more of those. And so I'm curious if you, if you have any thoughts about what it might mean for that type of water litigation between the States.
1: Yeah, I think this one's very hard to say because attitudes of justices in interstate cases have traditionally been hard to predict based on, ideology. And these are very traditional um, interstate disputes with a special master and equitable apportionment. And so I'm not sure that, that we can predict how conservative justices would look at the Army Corps, perhaps preferencing Georgia's water rights over Florida's water rights, for example. But I think it's possible that a more conservative court will have less sympathy for states whose claim of injury are based on environmental harm versus economic harm or other things. So Florida v. Georgia is is forefront in my mind in that case because the Apalachicola River has so suffered from low water. Um and and the way that the state has presented it to the court as is mostly environmental harm, even though there is economic harm wrapped up in it. So I think it's hard to call. Um, but cynically speaking, it's possible that this court will have less sympathy for those states which are claiming purely environmental impacts. Um, yeah.
0: So it seems like to me that in the 80s and 90s, um, the Supreme Court was ruling on some major environmental law issues like every few years. And then, I don't know, maybe, I mean, I think I've been keeping up with events. I mean, it seems like the last 10 to 20 years, you know, the pace of getting, you know, major environmental law rulings from the Supreme Court has really kind of slowed down. I mean, I... I mean, it does really just to me, it doesn't seem like they've been that many over the last couple of decades. And so, so I'm just curious if am I just, you know, you know, misinformed or what's going on?
1: No, I don't think you're misinformed. I think I think a few things are probably happening. You know, most of these statutes were written in the 70s. Some of them have been amended since these. Since then. So in the 80s and early 90s, you saw a lot of testing of the edges of the statute. Cong- Congress's authority, EPA's authority, and a lot of cases about what the statutes meant and didn't mean. So much so that you have some cases that are kind of considered like settled law, right? And so you don't see big cases about what the Clean Air Act means and the Clean Water Act means just because we've already done it. We've already tried it. So unless something were to change about the law, you wouldn't expect necessarily questions that seem as sweeping as those that you saw in the 80s and 90s. But We are seeing an uptick in how administrative law is practiced, which has a profound impact on environmental law. So, you know, administrative law is just law of the agencies. It's how they write regulations to give life to the Clean Water Act and how they're enforced. And this year, even you did see um, in a couple of cases, Kaiser... Gundy were both big admin cases, not environmental matters necessarily of, you know, Gundy certainly wasn't, but they will have trickle down effects on how environmental law is written, how environmental law is enforced. Now, of course, also in the last 10 years, at least, there's been a huge shift in the court. It's become more conservative and um, particularly since Chief Justice Roberts arrived environmental law cases that have come before the court have not all gone that well. 2009 went down as just the worst, the worst uh, term for environmental law cases kind of in the history of environmental law. And so perhaps also NGOs are not choosing to bring as many traditional large scale questions as they used to. Although I will say Maui County, County of Maui came out this year and it was a the first really big Clean Water Act case in in a decade, and it was a huge win for for uh, water rights and you know a progressive interpretation of, of the law.
0: Hmm. So, um, it you know to me, what you're talking about is the uh, kind of the guts of how things are done. The the you know agencies admit you know issue these rules that as you said, uh, tell everybody how, um, the acts passed by Congress, uh, are going to be implemented and enforced. And so if that kind of law is changing, uh, it would seem like, yeah, that's, that's, well, not only for environmental law, but everything, you know, that's going to be significant.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, one one theory that people have been kicking around with the shift in the court is whether or not the court will revisit this concept of non-delegation. So non-delegation is a constitutional doctrine that says Congress basically can't give its power away. And in the administrative law setting, it says if Congress is going to give its power away, it has to give a certain amount of guidance and instruction and intelligible principle to the agencies about how the law is supposed to be enforced. And we have reason to believe that some of the more conservative justices might revisit non-delegation, even though it's been pretty settled and untouched for almost uh, a century to say, Congress, you're giving away too much of your power. If your laws aren't clearer, then you can't just let agencies write the law for you. They're, they're not full of elected officials. They're not, you know, it's outside the political process in their view. So, so there so, could be big impacts.
0: Okay, so that, so see if I had this right. So what you're saying is that um, they might take a look at some acts and say, yeah, that's too general. You got to be specific about what you're telling the EPA they can do something like that.
1: Yeah, exactly that. So for about a hundred years, when an agency's actions has been challenged as kind of off the reservation from what Congress intended them to do, they've looked at the statute, what Congress wrote and looked for what's called an intelligible principle. It's basically an owner's manual. Right. Um, And It hasn't taken much to find it in these cases. They've basically given Congress the benefit of the doubt. It's been pretty permissive. But the court might start to make it tougher to identify an intelligible principle and say that if you can't find one, then Congress has violated the non-delegation doctrine and has given away too much of its power without enough guidance.
0: So, you know, I've, I've heard in the past all this discussion about the general welfare, welfare clause or something like that, that a lot of things kind of flow from that, um, that, you know, so maybe not very, it's not very specific, right? Specific. But is that an example of something that, well, it doesn't really specifically say anything in the, the constitution about, you know, some specific issue, um, And maybe you can't really attribute it to general welfare or something.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's just so because general welfare is a term that you see throughout environmental law used throughout environmental law that's not defined by Congress. And that happens a lot that they use terms like waters of the U.S., but they don't tell us what it means. And so it's left to agencies to interpret it. The interpret the interpretation changes based on who's in the White House, and then courts have their own interpretations that get layered on top of it.
0: Right, and states have their own interpretations. Of, you know exactly. We, and I've like had the and uh, um, you know enviable task a couple times of trying to mesh what the federal state uh, regulation said with what some states had and you know it's like okay this is like not this is like two different languages here and it's it's hard to really find an intersection yeah um it is okay
1: well and it's think about who are congressmen it's not they're not generally scientists with deep technical knowledge of you know these things right, right. And so they send them off to the agencies to try and make it work and um it, it's important to have expertise at those agencies. Um, right. Congress is probably not up to the task to regulate with the same specificity that agencies do. But you're right. Um, trying to make sense of all the states' programs versus the federal programs can be pretty dizzying.
0: Yeah. Well, this is a conversation for another day, but i I. I been keenly interested in the report that the Cong- congressional Re- uh, research service puts out every session of congress that like details how many you know folks in congress are attorneys how many are business owners and then how many you know might be scientists or, or something like that and you know the number of scientists you know, it's pretty small. I mean, you know, or engineers even. You know, there used to be a lot of engineers, but you know, in Congress, but not not so much anymore.
1: Not so much anymore. And and frankly, that's why we have agencies, so that Congress can say, we have this huge country, and in the area of environmental law, we have pollution, which doesn't stop conveniently at the border of Montana before it passes into another state. Right. So we need experts helping Congress yeah. to figure out how to tackle these big problems.
0: Even though it'd be nice to have a few more scientists and engineers in Congress, but, you know. I think it would be. So, so. I mean... <laughs> Couldn't hurt. Couldn't hurt. Uh, So uh, kind of shifting topics here. So, you know, now we've got the results uh, from the 2020 election, or most of them, enough to say that we had President-elect Biden and Vice President-elect Harris beginning their terms sometime in January, I guess the 20th, maybe. And so I'm interested what you think, the applications of the new administration coming in might be for environmental law at the department of justice.
1: Yeah. So Trump, president Trump, um, there are a lot of norms about how the department of justice is supposed to run. Um, they're not written down as, Laws anywhere, but there are a lot of norms that help the DOJ be independent from the White House. And um, the Trump administration was involved in environmental law in particular in a way that was pretty unprecedented, not only at the agencies, um, but for the DOJ as well. There was a lot of political involvement in how we brought cases, whether we brought cases um, and I can't speak for all of my colleagues, of course, and what their experiences were, but it seemed greater than kind of the natural policy shifts that happen between administrations and necessarily so, right? When the parties change, there's a mandate and the DOJ's work necessarily changes in response to it. So so given that as a, as a predicate that the last four years has been um, very unusual for the DOJ and the rest of the executive branch under Biden. um, I suspect there will be a greater than usual course correction to come back to where we were under president Obama and hopefully, expand even further into some protectionist um, policies. For the DOJ, that means that career attorneys will likely have more freedom to argue and file cases based on expansive arguments. Um, But again... It depends a lot on who's in charge at the DOJ and and how how involved they choose to be in the work of career attorneys.
0: Gotcha. So, you know, you just mentioned uh, the Trump administration and, uh, you know, they had a goal over these last four years of repealing a hundred environmental provisions or programs. And so I'm interested in how close, you know, did they get to to attaining their goal? And what do you think that effort will happen to that under the Biden administration? In in other words, you know, can, you know, can it all be undone? Uh, Or are, you know, we kind of in a position where we're just going to have to live with with the uh, 100 or close to 100, I guess, that were repealed or or eliminated or something. Yeah.
1: So um, the rollbacks have been unprecedented. Uh, the Sabin Center at Columbia, which is focused specifically on climate change, so it's a bit more expansive a list. But I looked yesterday and they'd counted 159 cutbacks on environmental protection or promotions of fossil fuel or both. And um, the regulatory rollbacks are across the EPA, um, DOI, many agencies that deal with environmental policies, right? So can it be undone? It depends. It depends on how it was done in the first place. Biden has already said that he will immediately issue a number of executive orders to reverse things that President Trump did through executive order. And that's relatively simple. Um, so that will happen, I imagine, the first day he is in office.
0: So that's a repeal, essentially. We're just, we're he gonna issues get back another to where executive
1: order that basically overrides Trump's executive order. Um, but then, other and other discretionary actions, so things that age that aren't regulations, like permitting of the Keystone Pipeline, can be undone. And President Elect Biden has said he's going to undo them um, as soon as he's in office. Internationally, he can re-enter the Paris Agreement right away and try to start um, getting the United States back at the table on on that front. And I think most importantly, and which people should be very excited about, is Biden can immediately stop the war on science that's been present under the Trump administration um, and by hiring scientists with excellent credentials and can repopulating the agencies with experts that were lost either through attrition or other means during the Trump administration. Where it gets tricky is reversing final agency regulations. So when the Trump administration has gone through actually the administrative process of notice and comment and rulemaking, and they've created new law. So Biden can't just come in and say none of that. They have to answer it with another rulemaking, with another proposed legislation. Uh, not legislation, regulation. And there are stumbling blocks for that. They have to have um, reasoned explanations for undoing Trump era final rules, and it will keep the agency very busy. And these processes could take years. Um, so examples of those are the waters of the U.S. rule, the methane rule, changes to car emissions, um, there are things that will take President Biden longer to do unless there's language in the regulation, which allows for a more permissive interpretation um, where Biden can tell his folks at the agency to interpret it and apply it in a different way than the Trump administration did while they go about rewriting it.
0: So that's that's the thing that I've been thinking a lot about, and, and I'm glad that you mentioned this because this is, I want to drill down on this point. So, you know, so it sounds like it's possible for the new administration to, you know, take a look at, you know, some act, some provision of some act passed by Congress for which the Trump administration, you know, repealed or changed a provision and say, OK, well, we want new rulemaking um, to you know, counter that. And by the way, you know, you know, our interpretation is, hey, this does more than than the original rulemaking. I mean, so you could get actually some expansion um, of of of, uh, you know, protections for air, water, land, land, wildlife etc that you know probably weren't really that that probably wasn't really anticipated when with this repeal process started that it might ultimately you know kind of result in a kind of a boomerang kind of thing for some of the, some of this
1: i think that's right i think i think there will be a a pendulum swing back to where where the rules survive notice and comment and litigation that might come after it back to not only the Obama era, but then even more protectionist beyond that, particularly in the area of climate change and air pollution. I think you'll see that.
0: Okay. Interesting. So, you know, everybody has to, you know, stay tuned for that uh, because those will be, I guess, processes where um, there's going to be a publication in the federal register and people will be invited to comment on whatever, you know, rule that's being developed by whatever agency. And so there'll be, you know, participate, public participation in that process. And, and uh, so I imagine a lot of people will be engaged in that.
1: Yeah. And I, I think you'll also see litigation from industry arising from some of that. Um, there's law surrounding when an agency changes its mind and how it does that. Um, and what kind of justifications it has to provide. So I, I think you'll see not only robust public comments, um, but also probably some cases cropping up um, just brought by industry rather than NGOs, m- more likely.
0: Well, that brings us back to Supreme Court again, I guess. You know, the importance of the, the makeup of it is, you know, may, that might be felt there when those cases if those cases make it to that level.
1: Mm -hmm. I think that's right. Um, I think particularly, you know, President-elect Biden has a $2 trillion climate change plan. Now, if Congress, if the Senate doesn't go Democratic, it's unlikely he'll get all the money for that. But what you will see is a lot of regulation to try to combat the impacts of global warming and I think um, there are there is reason for concern when those regulations land in front of the Supreme Court as it as it currently
0: sits. OK, well, let's let's go ahead and, and uh, end with a question about your work at the University of Denver's uh, Sturm College of Law and the Vermont Law School's Environmental Advocacy Clinic. Is it Sturm? Did I say that In right?
1: Sturm, yeah.
0: Sturm. Okay. So, so what are your impressions of the new crop of environmental attorneys that you're training? Um, you know, what do you think motivates them? Uh, any differences kind of stand out from um, how you remember, uh, you know, being a uh, a you know student at the Moritz. College of Law at Ohio State, and you know, getting ready to, to go down to New Orleans to get involved with, you know, the the um, big you know oil spill case. Uh, what do you see in the new group?
1: Well, you know, the new students are incredibly um, social justice oriented, climate justice oriented, and are focused on environmental law in a, a pretty cutting edge way that um, I certainly didn't get when I was in law school. Um, I had excellent professors, but, you know, I was in law school during the 2008 financial crisis and we were all pretty much just focused on getting jobs, <laughs> we were, right. you know? Um, and I think the Trump administration and the, um, the black lives matter this uh, the black lives matter movement this year and covid you know it feels like we're at a tipping point um societally globally and students are responding to that they're very interested in how they can make a difference in um perhaps more unusual environmental advocacy ways not just being a litigator but how do you advocate for communities who are underrepresented and haven't historically had a voice in court? How do you help empower um, historically disadvantaged people to get clean water and get clean air and help them be the driving force behind the law? And that's a major shift and a necessary one um, that's reflective of our of our time and hopefully the direction we'll be going in. Um, so they're just, they're very creative, they're passionate and committed and, and uh, really an inspiration. I think the the students graduating from Vermont law school are learning how to use the law to confront major challenges of the 21st century and make the world a better place. And, and I'm proud to teach them.
0: Well, one of my close friends, uh, got his llm uh from the vermont law school and he's from alabama and i remember him telling me how great the trout fishing was and so so that's what i you know that's always like a big impression for me you know if i could go someplace law school and do some trout fishing that'd be pretty great but i imagine they're pretty busy and they probably don't have a whole lot of time for that.
1: Well, it is in a beautiful setting. South Royalton, Vermont is just a gorgeous place and, and the fishing is <laughs> second to none up here. So <laughs> I do think when they get to take breaks from their studies, they're in a pretty beautiful environment.
0: That's great. That's great. So, so Abby, how can Uh, Our listeners find out more about the Vermont Law School's Environmental Advocacy Clinic.
1: So we're just online at vermontlaw.edu. And, you know, the Environmental Advocacy Clinic brings cutting edge litigation across the country um, on behalf of underserved communities. And uh, we are doing a lot of really important work that I hope we get to keep doing. And if you are looking at law school and you want to be an environmental lawyer and litigator, um, our clinic is a, a great place to come and learn.
0: Great. Abby, I, I really enjoyed talking with Thank you today. Me
1: too. You too. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you. So this has been Talkless Water. My guest today was Professor Abigail Andre, a former environmental litigator for the U.S. Department of Justice's Environmental Enforcement Section, who is now part of the Vermont Law School's Environmental Advocacy Clinic. If you enjoyed this episode of Talkless Water, why not give it a like? Would it hurt you? I mean, I'm just saying. Uh, (laughs) My name's Todd Butler. Let's talk water again soon.